All right. Well, welcome to those who are in the room, coming in the room. My table went wobbly. And for those online with us, uh, glad that you're here. This will be, I've said it the last two weeks, I'm going to say it one more time because somebody will wonder what happened. This will be our last time in here. Next week, Pastor Jay is starting a new series. Uh, if there's a little time at the end, and there may be, I may get Jay to grab a mic and come up and, and pitch it for us so you guys can hear what, what's in store next week, particularly those that are watching with us online. We would love for you to join us in person um, starting next week. So we're moving back to the Fellowship Hall, and we don't have live stream capabilities in there, and we're not going to put them in there, but we do have the ability to record, so that we will continue to podcast uh, our equip, uh, the big equip sessions that we do when we do large group things. But the reason to move back to the fellowship hall is to give us opportunity to discuss. A lot of what Jay's going to be doing over the next several weeks is uh, discussion-based, and that's it, next to impossible doing in here. And so it's time. We've moved back into the, into the fellowship hall, and uh, I will be heading upstairs and working with our students during our transition period. I invite you to keep praying for us. Once we get past the 21 days of prayer for Easter, we'll do a prayer guide for our search for a uh, new uh, next, pastor for Next Generation Ministries and somebody to lead students and children and preschool with, along, with our pre along with our directors that are already in place in those places. So... Um, I'll be upstairs on Wednesday nights doing that and Jay will be teaching with you guys and hopefully some more will come that are wanting to discover their role, their part in the mission of God's church. And uh, I have a little time at the end. I'll bring him up. But just so you know, those of you that are watching us online, this will be your last chance to watch it live. By the next day, typically we have it up on our podcasting places. So you'd be able to get it starting normally Thursday sometime during, during the day. So let me pray for us, and then we will get started tonight. Father, I thank you that we've had these last couple of months to study together um, the five solas of the Reformation, why they mattered, and why they still matter today. And God, that I pray that you have grown in our hearts a love for your word as we look to your word only for the uh, as our source of true information about what does it take for a person to be made right with God. I pray, God, that our faith has been increased as we've grown to understand, uh, grown in our understanding of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone, that our love for Christ is increased because of that, and that we've seen more about our lives being designed and our, even our salvation being fully and totally for the glory of God alone so that no man can boast, uh, but that all glory can go to you. And Father, as we end this time um, spending together tonight, I, I pray God that we would be edified, that you would be glorified. We would exalt Jesus in what we say and do. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, so last opportunity for us to kind of talk through this subject. I hope this has been uh, somewhat educational for you. Certainly, that's a little piece of what I try to do. We try to do with Equip is we want to grow you in your knowledge of some things. And so we dealt with some history and we dealt with 
um, some historic theology, which is a whole line of, like you can major in that in some places, historic theology. It's a really interesting subject. Um, but primarily, our, my goal has been to, to argue for and, and to, to help us kind of coalesce around the ideas that, that what was shaping the Reformation 500 years ago is still foundational for us. Now, if you go back into the early days of the Reformation and you look at the practice of some of those churches beyond like the, the mission of making disciples within the churches, but if you look at some of the practices of um, early Lutheranism and not even really early Lutheranism, but, but even some uh, synods of Luther, Lutherism that still exist today, um, which is what they call denominations within the broader tent of Lutheranism, uh, or Presbyterianism that came out of um, that, that came out of uh, John Calvin's movement uh, within uh, within the Reformation, and you you look at some of their practices. They obviously some of the practices of the church still look different. You, you can even go to um, the the uh, English England English Baptist uh, or the Anabaptist, which aren't the same thing, but we're, we're moving in the same direction uh, later during kind of the middle part of the Reformation. And, and within those movements, they're still practicing their Christianity. They're still doing things in some ways structured differently than we structured. But when you go back and look through uh, what they said they believed and, and the uh, the dangers that they went through, and it truly was dangerous because of the ties of the church and the state together. It's why uh, early Baptists, and still today, we are staunch proponents of um, the separation of church and state. The separation of church and state is not a bad thing. It is something we are in favor of uh, because many a reformer lost their lives at the hand of the church-state that, that ruled in, in Europe during that time. And, and, but when we look back and see the things that they believed, it, it's incredible to say all these years later, we are still affirming those things and doing our very best as a local church to live out uh, the Reformation. And, and the Reformation continues and we're, we're continuing to go to the scripture and to look at practices and beliefs within the church and ask critical questions and say, is that really what the scripture says, is that really what God wants us to know and to believe? Uh, earlier, in, earlier this week, I was uh, finishing up writing a chapter for my doctoral project, and I was writing on uh, historic confessions of faith. Um, and one of the historic confessions of faith I was reviewing uh, was the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which came out of uh, in, in the 1600s. So about a hundred years, basically kind of in the middle section of the Reformation, it was, it was you know, not the early generations of the Reformation, but was kind of a culmination in a lot of ways of that. And as I was reading that and writing about that document, I thought, man, it's just absolutely incredible that, that 400 years later, here we are uh, still affirming many of those things. Now, I don't affirm everything that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, we wouldn't as a church confirm every, uh, affirm everything that's in there, but we affirm so much of it. And so much of that, so much of that codified docu uh, doctrine has, has continued to kind of 
trickle down into our church and, and be, be really important of who we are, be foundational really of who we are. And much of it owes its um, allegiance to these five solas, that we go to Scripture alone, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. Uh, so I hope what you've seen over the last couple of months as we've been in this study together uh, really is foundational truths that hopefully we could teach uh, in, in a broad setting. Uh, because what we don't want to be is so exclusionary, exclusionary in our uh, Protestant evangelical baptistic view <laughs> that we've developed in the 21st century as Southern Baptists that somehow we think we have the corner on the truth. Uh, but these five solas really do unify us with many, many other denominations who believe the same thing we do about the gospel. Now, they may practice certain things differently than we do, but they believe the same things we do about the gospel. And, and so I feel like I could have taken this five sola series and maybe gone to several other churches in our community that don't have Baptists in the name, and, and they would have been equally as receptive of them, uh, of the teaching, because they are foundational for those churches just as they are foundational for ours. So I hope this has been edifying to you for that and kind of grown that foundational, um, or grown that foundation for you. Where, where I want to pick up today, where we're going, because I, I have, like, we shortened this series a little bit, and we missed a week in there, and um, so I've, I've got, but I've got to wrap it up today. Because next week we have to start the, the spring equip semester uh, in the fellowship hall. So let me, uh, I've just tried to boil it down to say, okay, what, what do I really want to make sure that I say? And I left off two weeks ago when we were talking about uh, in Christ alone, I left off a couple of sections that I wanted to talk about that truthfully uh, speak to what I'll do in the, during the second part. And that is give a modern defense for a theological idea as it relates to the atonement. Because what we've tried to do every other week is present doctrine and then present kind of the why this still matters. And so I've, I did not do that after we talked about Christ alone, the doctrine. We went straight into the for the glory of God alone doctrine. And so I want to back us up two weeks and talk a little bit about doctrine again, um, a specific doctrinal idea that I believe is foundational to, again, the understanding of what does it mean to be saved in Christ alone? What are we actually saying about the work of Christ that saves us? Uh, and then look at the modern challenges to that and kind of give some answers to it so that you would then be equipped to give some of those answers uh, if someone asks you. Now, maybe no one's ever asked you about this before, but there, there are some, some significant modern challenges to this that are being embraced in some forms and wings of Christianity and Christian thought. And so I want to be able to equip you to be able to answer some of that uh, of why we would believe what we believe about the death of Jesus. So, so we're going to talk further today about the understanding of the death of Christ, primarily in what is known uh, as this is, going to be the, this is going to be the term, penal substitutionary atonement. Now, I know that's a big doctrine word, and a lot of times on Wednesdays, I try not to use big, big doctrine words. Sometimes I do. Uh, I, I do more on Wednesdays than I do on Sundays. 
Um, but let me, let me give you the, let me just break it down to ensure that we understand what we're, what we're talking about. So uh, when we look at penal, P-E-N-A-L, uh, we're looking at the word penalty, right? We have the, the penal system, our penal code. This is dealing with justice, matters of justice, but particularly matters of punishment, right? That, that people are being sent to penitentiaries. All of these come from that same word, right? That, that are punishments for wrong action. And so uh, the, the first thing that penal substitutionary includes is um, the idea that uh, there is a punishment for action. Substitution is that something is taking the place of something else, right? And we, probably the best example that we have of this, the place we use that word the most is in, um, uh, you know, is in the school system. When, when a teacher's not there, what happens? A substitute comes in, right? That was every kid's favorite day was the substitute teacher because it meant you weren't going to do a whole lot. Um, but that's the idea that someone is taking the, the place of, of someone else. If you've ever like ordered groceries online, you know all about substitution because they never have all of the things that you ordered and they're going to substitute it with something else. And then atonement, we've, which we had been talking about. That's, atonement was what we were talking about two, day, two weeks ago uh, in, in that Jesus paid a specific price. He paid, uh, the, the Bible word for it is propitiation, a, right, a righteous sacrifice that, that he died not just, at, not just a criminal's death, but he died a, a religious death, a sacrificial death in the same way that um, the sacrificial system Took, took the life of animals spilling their blood. Jesus's, blood. Jesus's blood was spilled for us. So as we think about penal substitutionary atonement today, we, we, we want to think about it at, in, in first what it accomplishes. And what it accomplishes is it accomplishes a complete payment for uh, your sin and for mine. So let's start from our perspective of of this question, could we pay the price for our own sin? And the answer to that is, I think, yes and no. Um, It's yes in that right now, uh, consciously, there are those who have gone to the grave without believing in Jesus Christ and his salvation, uh, who are now separated from God, paying the price for their sin in a real place called hell. And that they will do so for all eternity. Now, there'll, there'll be, there, the Bible speaks of kind of a transition period. There'll be a resurrection and a judgment. And I believe that, that not only will there be a resurrection of, of life, but there'll be a resurrection of death as well. And those who are not in Christ will be resurrected and judged and sent to an eternal place of judgment. Um, and, and they will pay the price for their sin. But there's a reason that we say it is eternal, which, by the way, is one of the things that's under attack. I'm not really going to talk about it today. Uh, but the eternal nature of hell is under great attack in modern Christianity. There are many modern Christians who deny the eternal nature of, uh, of hell. They, they have embraced some mediated position, uh, many moving towards what's known as annihilationism. Annihilationism teaches that you would pay the penalty for your sin for some amount of time and then ultimately just be snuffed out of existence and that you wouldn't exist anymore. Um, others, uh, particularly within um, uh, the 19th century, 
building upon some, some things that, that were embraced within um, uh, Protestant liberalism, what was the idea that maybe people would go to hell for a little while, uh, but then ultimately um, love wins. That was a book somebody wrote about this subject going on 20 years ago now, uh, maybe 15 years ago now, and that, that eventually everyone will be restored to, to God, that, that, that everybody will, you know, that hell will eventually be empty and heaven will, will eventually be full. The problem with that is, is that it makes the assumption that any period of time, that, a, that, that we could set a period of time that would actually pay for our sin. So I said the answer to the question is yes and no. It's yes in that those who, who have not trusted in the death of Jesus uh, for their salvation, yes, they will go to hell and pay the price for their sin, uh, but they will never fully do so because they cannot fully do so. They will pay the price for their sin for all eternity. So, but for those who, that, for those who trust in Christ, uh, the atoning work of Jesus is a uh, complete payment. It, it, if, we would, if we could suffer for our own sins, either in life as Jesus did for us or even in death, we would never be able to still never be able to make ourselves right with God. So just as you cannot make yourself right with God by righteous acts, you also can't make yourself right with God with atoning works. That it is impossible for you to, to pay that price for your sin. But Jesus was able to bear all of the wrath of God against our sin and to bear it completely. And when I say to bear it completely, what I mean is that the work of Jesus, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for those who would believe is a finished work. There's a reason in John 19 where, you know, where some of the last words of Jesus on the cross are recorded what, what, are, what are one of them? It's in John 19, 30. Jesus says, it is finished. Is, there was nothing else that needed to be done. Which, if you want to get into like a third, third order doctrine, just, just I'm going to dabble in this and it's probably going to open up a can of worms. Um, but there are some who believe that in that, in that three-day period between the cross and the resurrection that Jesus went to hell because there was some things Jesus needed to accomplish in hell. My primary argument, and I consider that tertiary, by the way, like third order, meaning you can, you can agree with me on this or disagree with me on this, but I don't believe Jesus went to hell. And, and the, the thing that I cannot get over is it is finished. I can't get past that. If, it were, if, it, if it's finished, then there was nothing else Jesus needed to do. That what Jesus secured on the cross in the moment of it is finished was actually finished. That he didn't have to go do something. Now, at least from a salvific point of view, there, there are some arguments that Jesus went to hell to accomplish other things. And, and if that's, that's where you land, that, that's okay. But, but from an atonement point of view, the death of Jesus on the cross did it. Fully, completely done. And it did it. And I don't have this one in my notes, but I want to, I want to read this for us in, and it did it for us completely as well. So when it's applied to us, right? Romans eight, one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus this is what wasn't in my notes. Cause I know that Bible verse, um, for some reason, my brain was like, what's Romans eight, one, um, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Not even a little bit. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because it is finished. It's done. We, we don't, it's not like the atonement is partially applied or 99.9% applied. It's completely applied. And it's applied because Jesus took the penalty for our sin. It was inflicted upon him by the Father. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. That this, that this has always been the plan, that, that he would make sin, that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Right? This, is, this has always been the plan of God, that he would sacrifice Jesus on our behalf, and Jesus willingly bore that penalty for us. So when we talk about penal substitutionary atonement, that's what we're talking about, that Jesus bore a penalty for us, substituting himself in, the, in our place in death so that it could be finished on our behalf. That there is nothing else that we need to, to accomplish. There is, there, it, it's why, and, and this, this, this matters for like how we think about eternity and, and particularly, you know, the difference between heaven and hell. It matters for things like questions like, where did Jesus go after we die? But it also matters in practices of the church, like the Lord's Supper, there's a reason that um, one of the big splits within the church, um, one of the big differences within the church when the church split during the, during the Protestant Reformation was the way in which the church viewed, um, viewed the Lord's Supper. Because in the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, Christ's body and blood are broken and spilled every time the church receives communion that it is literally the body of Christ and literally the blood of Christ that is broken and, and spilled, saying that Jesus is basically crucified again every time. It just doesn't need to be crucified again. So when the Protestant Reformation is happening and the doctrines are beginning to adjust and they're beginning to go to the Bible and ask these questions, it's why they began to think differently about the Lord's Supper. I mean, early in the Reformation, they began to think differently about the Lord's Supper because it's just like, wait, it is finished. <laughs> it, was, it was already done. There is now no condemnation, right? Like the work was complete. Jesus bore that penalty once for all done. There are other ways the New Testament describes, um, uh, describes aspects of the atonement, but these are all aspects of the atonement. They're all intended to teach us different things about the complete work of Christ. Let's just look at a couple of them. Uh, actually four of them. The first is really probably the one that, or one of them that really connects closely with atonement. And that is the idea of sacrifice. In Hebrews 9, 26, we read, for then he would have to have, I have to had the, to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, We've talked a lot about Hebrews in here over the last couple of months. And so you, if you've been coming to these, you already know, right? Hebrews, um, the, the author of Hebrews, the whole thing he has in mind in the author of Hebrews is to show how Jesus fulfills the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. How he is both the priest making the sacrifice and how he is the perfect sacrifice. That's, that's the goal of uh, the, the book of Hebrews. 
And so sacri- the word sacrifice appears over and over and over again in Hebrews. Uh, it, sacrifice isn't the only thing we need to know about the atonement, but it is certainly an important thing for us to know about the atonement, that Jesus sacrificed himself and that he sacrificed himself in a very specific way. He sacrificed himself uh, like everything that, that lines up with the, the, the death of Jesus is important, right? Like this is taking place during the Passover event, uh, that Jesus is in Jerusalem when these things are happening. Like all of that mattered for the Old Testament sacrificial system. That, that, he, that all of those sacrifices were pointing towards him. And so sacrifice is one aspect of the atonement. Another aspect of the atonement, which I've already mentioned, let me just mention it again, is propitiation. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is one of those words that when Bible translators, and I say this anytime I talk about Bible translating, there is, I believe, nothing in uh, Christian ministry more difficult than Bible translation, okay? Nothing. I think it is the hardest thing that people do in Christianity, like in the you know, ways that you can serve the church. Um, Bible translation is incredibly difficult. You're going from ancient manuscripts and ancient languages to modern languages that change always. And the minute you translate a word, um, that you, you're on a ticking clock. I mean, you, you really are. And propitiation is one of those words. And so propitiation is one of those words that Bible translators, when they run across the Greek that we translate for that, always have to make some decisions. And, and some more modern translations have begun to make the decision to stop using the word propitiation because it is a doctrin- it's a doctrinal term that is still an English word. But to, to, u- to stop using that word and to start using the term righteous sacrifice, because in truth, that's, that's really what it means. Now, I kind of prefer... Uh, one of the reasons I prefer the ESV translation, and that's what I preach from. There's a few reasons I prefer it. One of the reasons is because they left propitiation intact in the text. Um, and I like the word, even though I have to explain the word every time we get to it. Um, I, I think we can, we can do with a little explanation sometimes. And so that's what propitiation means. It means a righteous sacrifice. So it's not just a sacrifice. So there is, such a, there is a difference between a sacrifice and a, and a righteous sacrifice. Um, right? There are sacrifices that happen in think, think just the context and culture of the old Testament and the new Testament. There were sacrifices being made to false gods all the time, right? Probably the majority of sacrifices that have been made in our world have not been righteous sacrifices. They've been false sacrifices. But what, what the word propitiation means when, when John and others use it, when he says he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, that it is a righteous sacrifice, that this is a sacrifice that is stamped right by God, right? So that builds on what the author of Hebrews is saying. It was a sacrifice. He sacrificed himself. John would say, yes, it was a righteous sacrifice, that, that it accomplished what God would say it would accomplish. And then what, what are the things that it accomplished? It accomplished reconciliation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul writes, In this is love, not that we have uh, loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be. That is not what that says. That's what 1 John 4 says. So let me look up 2 Corinthians. It's the same verse. 
Sometimes copy and paste into your notes will get you. I think that's the first time in this series that that's happened. It happens to me all the time. 2 Corinthians 5, here we are, 18. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled, that's why we're talking about reconciliation, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now there's a lot there that we're not going to talk about, particularly that that latter half. Here's what we are going, here's what we do need to talk about for this, uh, for our purposes here. And that is that from God, what Christ accomplished through the atonement is reconciliation. That he was, through the act of dying on the cross in our place, he was redeeming or he was bringing a people back into God. Now, I I just spilled the beans and talked about the last one. I'm going to talk about redemption in a minute, kind of the the way in which he does it. Uh, Just as sacrifice and propitiation kind of go together one builds on the other so does the things that are that are accomplished right so reconciliation is the bringing back in of people this has been the story of scripture from the beginning right from the beginning adam and eve are in right relationship with god they're separated from god and now the relate the, the relationship between god and his creation is broken and the whole story of the bible is this people being reconciled, but they're reconciled in a specific way. They're reconciled through redemption. And so is what Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom means, literally means bought back. That, that's, that's what Jesus did. So this is how reconciliation is accomplished it's accomplished because the work of Jesus on the cross literally bought us back from sin he ransomed right so when we think about this in light of again that whole story of scripture when people say what do you think the whole story of scripture about to me that answer is easy the story of scripture is that God is redeeming a people for himself for his glory And God redeeming a people for himself or his glory culminates in Jesus on the cross. It is finished, giving his life, atoning for sin, a propitiation, right? A righteous sacrifice that reconciles sinful man with holy God. And here's the argument that I'm going to make. While there are numerous views of the atonement that are out there, there's only one that accomplishes this, all of this fully. And that is, that is penal substitutionary atonement. That, that is atonement that bore a penalty, substituted himself in our place, taking on the wrath of God so that we might be reconciled to him, that we might be bought back from death. So the guy who wrote the book, uh, the fourth book in that, in that series, I think there's still some books out there. If you want to uh, grab one of them, we'll keep them in the equip center till they're gone. But the guy who wrote the book, uh, Stephen Wellam, on, um, on In Christ Alone, uh, wrote an article for Nine Marks, uh, which is um, an organization out of D.C. that we use regularly. We have Nine Marks books in the equip center. Um, and he, he wrote a, an article that was really helpful for this. I'm going to give him credit because I'm going to use some of his main points here. Um, 
It just so happened to be the same guy that wrote the book. He's, a, he's an expert on this subject. Um, but he wrote an article defending penal substitutionary atonement against some of its modern uh, cri- critiques. And really what, what Wellam did there in that article was he, he breaks out or kind of takes the modern critiques of, and when I say modern, I mean the last century really. Um, so not just like today, but these, these, are, these are things that have been building in the theological circles. Uh, and he, he groups them together in four questions. And so that's what I want to do is just kind of think about these four questions with us as we think about why this still matters. Um, and so one, the first question uh, that is a challenge to penal substitutionary atonement is why can't God just forgive sin? Has anybody ever asked you that question? People have asked me that question. I get that. Of these four, I get that one probably the most. Because it, it, it's actually somewhat of a logical question, right? Now, it's, it's, it's not a question based in the logic of right theology, but it is a logical question just based in pop culture theology, right? And pop culture theology says there's this big man upstairs that can do anything he wants to do, right? And most people kind of affirm that, right? Most, most of our culture, even though agnosticism and atheism are growing in our culture, they're still not nearly dominant. Uh, and even though Christianity is a minority in our culture, there's this huge swath of people that are just kind of whatever they want to be. And that whatever they want to be people spilling even into some people that identify as Christians kind of viewed God in through that pop culture theology lens. It's just like God's this benevolent, right? Um, what was the term that I used last semester when we were talking about uh, worldviews and and the gospel for all, right? It was just like this, this benevolent, um, I can't remember. It's almost like Santa Claus, you know, it's just, he, he wants good things for me. He gives good things to me. He punishes really, really bad people. And then he, he's just kind of a happy guy that can do what, whatever he wants to do. Um, a benevolent genie, I believe was the, was the word that, that I used last semester. Um, so if that's true, right? If that's what your logic is based in, and you ask, the, if they're like, okay, well, if that's true, then why doesn't God just, okay, all sins are forgiven. Maybe you've had that question at some point. Maybe you've thought that. Maybe somebody has asked you that, that question. Well, the answer to that question requires that we think about God biblically and not just however we want to think about him. And when we think about God biblically, what we do is we go back to what I talked about um, in the last couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks, at least portions of those times, I've talked about the character of God and, and what's known as the impassibility of God, that God does not change and that God is wholly made up of his characteristics. Remember, and I was talking about wrath and I said the wrath of God is not a characteristic of God, that justice is a characteristic of God and wrath is his, is his justice at work in sinners, right? Um, and, and that re, in that really lies the answer to why can't God just, you know, snap his fingers and forgive sin? Because justice is a part of his character. And, and being that justice is a part of his character, it means that the law itself, morality, and I'm not just talking about the Old Testament law, even though the Old Testament law is kind of the codified version of this, but morality, 
is God. So where a human judge may apply the law outside of themselves, if you've been watching the news the last couple of days, our new Supreme Court justice nominee has been answering questions. Um, and uh, the side that was really mean last time is being really nice this time. And the side that was really nice you know, last time is being really mean this time. It's all for show. Anyway, she's been answering a lot of questions. Some of them I've not appreciated her answers on. Uh, things like life and, and um, gender. She answered poorly, I think, yesterday. That's just an aside. Um, but nonetheless, all, what do judges do, right? Judges are supposed to apply a law. But that law, they didn't come up with it. Like, judges don't write the law, do they? And certainly judge, the, the law isn't, isn't one and the same with the judge. They apply law that is outside of themselves. But that is not the way justice works with God because God is the law. Because justice is a characteristic of God that has eternally been a characteristic of God and is unchanging. And so God is not applying law that is outside of himself. He is applying law that is himself. He is morality. He is the law. And so being that he is justice, he then demands justice. And so then our sin is not against a law that is man-made or created. Our sin is against the law which finds itself in the character of God. So it's not just against the law, it's against God because God is the law. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 51 says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your works and blameless in your judgment. The psalmist in Psalm 51 recognizes something we all have to recognize, that it is against God and God alone that we sin. And we say, wait a second, doesn't the Bible talk about us sinning against one another and sinning against... Absolutely it does. But those are temporal offenses in light of what the psalmist is describing and what we're talking about here. Yes, we should forgive one another and Jesus talks about forgiving one another. And by the way, Jesus talks about forgiving one another in kind of in the same way that the question is asked, well, why doesn't God just forgive us, right? Jesus tells us to forgive 70 times 7, right? So we're supposed to forgive that way. Why doesn't God? Well, because the law, doesn't, the law isn't part of my character. The morality isn't part of my character. It's part of God's. And so when we sin, yes, often our sin is against one another, but ultimately our sin is against God because he is the one who is more, the moral center of the universe. So for God to forgive us, he must do so while staying true to himself. And he is justice. So he must meet his own moral demands. And this is why the righteousness of Christ is so important. The righteousness of Christ is so important because someone had to meet the moral demands of God in the flesh. And Jesus was able to do that. Think about what we said out of 2 Corinthians 5 a minute ago. For he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And this is that great exchange that takes place in the atonement that Jesus takes sin and gives righteousness. Somebody had to meet that moral demand of God. And Jesus did it. So for God to forgive sins without sacrifice would require that he deny his holiness and justice, which are essential to his being. 
If these are not essential to his being, then he is not the standard for morality in the universe. If for some reason we, if we're, you know, someone wants to just argue, because this whole argument is based off of uh, holiness and justice being central to who God is, being an eternal characteristic of God. And so if somehow we want to take those things out of God and say, no, 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 God is just, which is why, by the way, people that argue against this, the only characteristics of God they ever want to talk about is the love of God, which we ought to all talk about the love of God because God is love, but that's not the only thing God is. Because you have to take out the holiness of God from his character. You have to take out the, the justice of God and even the righteousness of God from his character and if you do that, God ceases to be the moral center of the universe. Now the moral of the center of the universe becomes something else because it is no longer found in God because there is nothing in God that says what is right and wrong if you take out his holiness and his justice. But if God is eternally holy and if God is eternally righteous and if God is eternally just, then God could not just snap his fingers and forgive sin because it would be against his character to do so. That sin had to be punished. Second, the second question is, isn't penal substitution based on the Western idea of justice being uh, based on retribution and not restoration? So certainly within as... Christianity flourished in Europe, um, and then um, Europe, you know, sent um, settlers to the New World, and laws developed um, both uh, in Catholic nations and in Protestant nations. Um, there, there was much of Christianity that was codified in Western civilization. It's impossible to study Western civilization without studying Christianity. It's absolutely impossible, right? There is there are many of our laws are based within, are based on um, morality found in the Scripture. And because of that, and because we see judgment of sin in Scripture, Western civilization has pretty much always punished wrongdoing uh, in a retribution sense. We, we've sent people to jail. We've sent people to the death penalty. Like these are things that Western nations have done. But Western nations, that's not exclusive to Western nations. While other nations, while, you know, Eastern nations and, and other places um, may, may have different codified laws, they, they still very much do often the same things that Western nations do. But it's, it's, it's a wrong view of penal, substitution, penal substitutionary atonement to only think that it is about retribution and not about restoration. A right view of the atonement says that penal substitutionary atonement is about both of those things and without one, you can't have the other. It's not only retribution, it's also restorative. But to only focus on the restorative nature of God's judgment is really to put the cart before the horse. <laughs> that, that yes, 100%, I would affirm that the atonement is about restoration, right? And this is why I've said the story of the whole Bible is that God reconciles, you could substitute that word, restores, reconciles a people for his glory. That's the story. So yes, it is about 
reconciliation. It is about restoration. But retribution, punishment of sin has to go along with that. So let me just say, wait, is God's justice really about restoration? Absolutely. Psalm 71, 2 says, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Right? Isn't this what we're all crying out when we cry out to God for salvation? We're crying out for reconciliation. We're crying out for restoration. We are looking to a future return of Christ that, you know, the, the question I, I think I was asked on Sunday, you know, is it, is it new heaven, new earth, or is it like, is it new as in like brand new? Is it new as in like made new? Okay. There's good arguments on both sides, but nonetheless, what's, what's, what's happening, right? There's, there's a restoration that, is, that takes place. This is what we long for. But for God to make things right, which is what restoration is, right? To quote unquote make things right, he has to punish that which is wrong. That's the whole story of Romans 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> the whole story of Romans 1, 2, and 3 is setting up the idea of, right, the whole story of Romans 1 through 8 is, is like the whole story of salvation until you get to that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are now more than conquerors, right? You get to that in Romans 8, but you can't take Romans 8 without Romans 1 through 7, and you really can't take Romans 4 through 7 without Romans 1 through 3, and Romans 1 through 3 are like, hey, we're all wretched, pitiful sinners, and God is going to punish that. And God can either punish that in you, or God can punish that in Jesus. But that's not just a a Pauline like theology that Paul cooked up somewhere. I mean, this has been the way God has talked about his, his justice from the beginning. You go all the way back to Exodus in Exodus 34, we read the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, right? Restoration, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and their children's children to the third and fourth generations. Punishment, that these things go together. And so we, because of God being who he is, we, we have to take, just a, we have to take um, retribution and restoration together, not demand or look to God for just one or the other. The third question is penal substitution. I mentioned this last week or two weeks ago, is penal substitutionary a form of, quote, divine child abuse. Uh, this is the most common complaint probably uh, in theological circles. Uh, it's a, obviously intended to be derogatory, intended to, to uh, belittle the position as, as, and, and equate it somehow as if what God the Father did to Jesus the Son on the cross was somehow child abuse. It's a very common descriptor in theological circles from those who would speak negatively about this understanding. The problem is it, 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 it's, a, it's a really a mischaracterization uh, and it's wrong for several reasons. First off, it's wrong because Jesus wasn't a child, right? I mean, you could just speak to the very basics of the complaint and say, but wait, Jesus wasn't a child. Jesus was somewhere in the neighborhood of a 33-year-old man. And I don't know, you know, very many fully grown 33-year-old men that would still consider themselves to be a child, right? G Jesus wasn't a child, um, but he also willingly gave himself. 
Um, th- that, that to me is, is a major point within this rebuttal to the whole idea that penal substitutionary atonement is divine child abuse is that Jesus willingly walked into this. In John 18, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, I love that verse. Uh, For this reason, uh, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He lay, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What's Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm doing this willingly. When he says I have the authority to lay it down, it means... He's part of the decision-making process. And really, that's, that's if you want to know the, the, what's theologically wrong with this question, is that it, it gets the Trinity wrong. It somehow assumes that Jesus isn't a part of the process. It assumes that Jesus is somehow a third party and not fully God and fully man. That Jesus didn't choose alongside of the Father, as a part of the Godhead, as a part of God. And when we say the term God, what we're saying is Jesus, or we're saying God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're saying, when we say God, we're talking about all three of them. That when God decided to redeem a people to himself for his glory, Jesus is included in that. He's not just some random third party that was selected to be punished for the sins of mankind. He willingly gave himself being God. And Paul affirms this in Philippians 2, right? Who though he was in the form of God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That this is what Jesus does. That Jesus willingly steps into the sacrificial role as fully God and fully man. It also assumes a false understanding of the Trinity that somehow breaks the Trinity into pieces, thinking that Jesus died as some broken section of the Godhead instead of, I think, rightly affirming that Jesus died in unbroken unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So you got to be really careful, by the way, when we start talking about what happened on the cross when God Right, and we talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and I think I, I mentioned a little bit of this. You got to be really careful right there, because the thing that didn't—I don't know fully what happened when Jesus says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" I do know that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. I think that's the most important thing that we need to know. I don't want to build a doctrine off of Jesus saying those words. I think Jesus was connecting the Old Testament Psalm to what was happening. Uh, but whatever else is happening in that moment, can I promise you what wasn't happening? because of the impassibility of God, the fact that God never changes. Jesus, the son, the second person of the Trinity did not cease to be the second person of the Trinity. (laughs) He remained fully the second person of the Trinity during that entire time because God cannot change. And so to, to assume somehow that the father is punishing the child and separating him and killing him for, for others, um, in, in, a, in, a way that does, in a way that Jesus is not fully 
uh, willingly going to the cross and fully willingly being a part of that decision before the foundation of the world is, is a false understanding of the Trinity. Fourth, last one, is penal substitutionary unjust for transferring guilt from the guilty to the innocent? Is penal substitution unjust for transferring guilt from the guilty to the innocent? Now, let's think about this for a minute. If the law were outside of God, let's just think about human law for a minute, then we would say, well, absolutely. Right? There, there is nothing... Um, have, you ever, have you ever watched those documentaries? Sometimes I get sucked into these documentaries about things. And the ones that really, that really infuriate me is when somebody went to jail and they didn't do it. You're like, oh man, like my heart goes out to that guy, you know, or that lady, whoever it is. That, that's just gotta be terrible, knowing like I did not do this. And, it, and, and not just saying you didn't do it, but I actually didn't do it. And then somehow they're exonerated later or something, right? Well, think about how worse that would be if we sent innocent people to jail not because we thought they did it, but because we knew someone else did it, but we sent this person to jail anyway. Like that would just be insult on top of insult, wouldn't it? And that's really the question that's, that's at play here because when we think about that from a human standpoint, we're like, we would never punish the innocent for the sins of the guilty, but it's not because the law again is, out, is not outside of God. The law is God. God is both the law and the judge and the person sinned against and the sacrifice that is being made. The son, Jesus, as the second person in the Trinity, is who we have sinned against and whose moral demands is against us. Jesus wasn't just a man on the cross. He is, was in that moment and is still today and has always been God. So this ultimately fails to see the redemption plan of God, uh, the, fails to see redemption as the plan of God all along. This has always been God's plan. This is why Peter writes of Jesus in 1 Peter 1, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That, that this has always been the plan. Jesus was never a plan B. <laughs> Jesus was the plan A. That God, God knew that in creating a world in which sin was possible, that people would sin. I think God knew who would sin and God knew what our sins would be and God knew that he would, that that his justice would demand both a punishment for sin, but also in his love to reconcile sinners to himself. And God, being both the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, are present in that act. And in, you know, you do have to describe it in human terms, but in human terms, making the decision, as if God makes a decision, right? But we just describe it in human terms. Making the decision to do that willingly, to from the perspective of the father to sacrifice his son, from the perspective of the son to be the sacrifice, that this was God's plan all along. And so 
because God, the Father and the Son, are the law, the one sinned against, the one judging it, and the one that is the sacrifice, it's not that we are transferring guilt to innocent in the way that we would think about it in human terms. Yes, Jesus is, was fully innocent, but he was a knowing participant in the process, giving himself for us. So when we think about the atonement, we need to think about the atonement in this way, that that it is the punishment of sin, but the punishment of sin on someone else in our place. And that, um, I don't think that that challenge, as I watch, you know, the progression of theology, we're continuing to move away from this in major theological circles in our culture. That we are quickly, I believe, becoming uh, not just Southern Baptists, but many other um, uh, pro, you know, evangelical Protestant denominations that agree with us on this are quickly becoming the minority. Um, not just minority within the culture, we were already that, but minority even within those who would claim the name of Christ in, in affirming this as truth, that God saved us by pouring his wrath on his beloved son. Now, I don't think you can read scripture and escape that idea. And I don't, for me, I don't want to, right? I want to affirm what the scripture affirms and recognize I don't fully understand all of it, but I want to be able to defend that um, because for us to say that we are saved in Christ alone, we have to really understand what does that even mean? And to be saved in Christ alone means to look and to say, Jesus is died in my place, paying a price I could not pay on my own so that I could be saved. All right, we have three minutes left. Jay, grab, you got a prayer mic, Jay, could grab really quick? And he's going to come and uh, just come stand right in front of me, Jay, it'll be fine. And he's going to give you two minutes on uh, what we're going to start next week, maybe some ways you could prepare for it. If there's some things I could do to prepare for it, that'd be awesome. There we go. All right, Grout, so... Um... I wanted to shout a little bit back there as you were talking about that substitutionary atonement. Because I'll tell you right now, um, there's a lot, there's a lot that um, that comes to mind in terms of things that mistakes that I've made and um, and how Christ has covered those. And so, uh, thank you for teaching us and doing so in a way that that uh, really is impactful. So as we look at our mission here on the wall, right? We exist to glorify God and exalt Jesus by reaching in through prayer and up, thank you, up through prayer and worship, in through discipleship and fellowship, and out through evangelism and outreach or ministry. And you have a role somewhere in that piece. And our job is to find out what exactly is that role. I think of uh, March Madness as all the craziness that's going on with basketball. And what if the center just decided to take a break in the middle of a basketball game? That'd go really poorly, wouldn't it? Well, God needs you in this basketball game right now. And not only does he need you, but he desires you to be there. And he's got a mission on this earth, and he's calling each and every one of us to it. And it's essential that we understand God's mission for the world and our role in it. And if you have that perfectly figured out, then please step up here after pastor because I'm still working through that. Even at this place, I understand my calling, but how can I better meet and answer the call to serve 
in God's mission here on this earth. That's a very difficult thing to do. So for the next 10 weeks, we're going to try to go through and understand exactly what God's mission is and what our role and our piece is in it. And we've got a couple of different ways to get content. We've got PDF files that you can download. We can print out a booklet for you if you reach out to the church office. And you can also get the information off the web um, through our web-based content. But it's very important that we fully understand and grasp the opportunity that's in front of us. We're in a game and there's no bench riders essentially in this championship. We need you all. Um, and if we're going to be able to do this effectively in Nasman, um, we need every one of you. And so I'd encourage you to invite somebody out. Um, be here next Wednesday in the fellowship hall and be ready for some discussion. Um, that's something that Ryan, Pastor, has really pushed that he wants us to engage each other in conversation. Um, and I think that's going to be one of the, the highlights, in, uh, at least for me. If you have questions, I'll be in the back afterwards. You can reach out through us, uh, to us through the, um, the church office as well. And I would really encourage those of you that are watching online to try to make it if you can, um, because there's really going to be a lot of meaningful discussion that comes out of this. Yeah, absolutely. If you've been watching with us, we've made it a little easy for you. I know Wednesday night, I know traffic, I know work, I know all of that, uh, but if you can get here, get here, because I think this is going to be an, an important couple of months uh, for, uh, for our church uh, as, um, you know, I, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, we, we've, we've had a lot of people here lately, a lot. Um, Sunday was the largest worship service that wasn't an Easter Sunday that we've had since I've been the pastor here. Um, and so we, we've got, we got a lot of people we got to get to know. We got a lot of ministries that are cranking back up. Some of our last ministries that were still sitting out doing some things differently because of, because of COVID are cranking back up this spring. And, um, it means everybody, I, I like the analogy, right? Nobody gets to sit on the bench. We need everybody in the game. And this is going to be a, a fresh new time. And if you've come to us during COVID, I was during the chili cook-off when we all couldn't get in the fellowship hall. And everybody was standing on top of each other. I, uh, I, I don't remember who was standing by me, but I looked at somebody and I said, this has been at the church for a long time, and I said, how many of these people you think came, came to our church during COVID? And the best guess that I could give for, for that in the room was, was maybe 25, maybe as much as a third of the people there have come into our church in the last two years. So you've got a lot of people that are involved in church, maybe some of you that are involved, maybe some of you watching online that are involved in our church, but you've never seen us at like full go. You know, some of our ministries have always been, well, because of COVID, we're doing this, because of COVID, we're doing that, right? Well, no more. Everything's back, right? We're doing all this stuff. And, and so this is going to be a chance for, for everybody to start asking some of those questions. So, man, I'm, I'm super excited. He and I have spent a lot of time talking about it and, I'm really excited, and I'm just really excited that our new pastor for adult discipleship and outreach is going to get to I mean, Equip's going to be a part of his ministry. It's not that I'm not ever going to teach in Equip again, um, but uh, Equip's are going to be a part of his ministry, and so I want him early in this to be able to do that, um, be able to teach on Wednesday. So let me pray for us, and we'll be, we'll be done tonight. God, thank you for um, how you've instructed us in your word. I pray, God, that as iron sharpens iron, we've sharpened one another. And we look now expectantly to what will start, Lord willing, uh, next Wednesday night as we seek to discover our place in the mission of God. God, we recognize that we, we're all making disciples of something. We pray, God, we would be making disciples of Jesus in our lives. And 
as we're making disciples, we're doing that by reaching up, reaching in, reaching out together. And so help us uh, to, to have a renewed energy in our church as we seek to be a battleship, not a cruise ship, that every hand will be on deck, uh, ready to go, uh, and, and that every new person that, that walks through these doors looking for uh, a gospel-centered, Bible-believing church will find that here, but then quickly find a place that they can serve according to their giftedness here. So God, would you use this to equip new people uh, and people who have been here a long time to serve in new ways? Uh, in the life of our congregation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next week in the Fellowship Hall. God bless you.